<clears throat> the um, mention of the youth missions trip, just want to reemphasize that again. Um, great group of kids and wonderful group of adults that are with them. Um, and they do need, uh, they do need prayer. It's, um, I think, going to be over 100 there. They're in, I think, is it Columbia or Columbus? I can't remember. South Carolina. Um, I think it's 100 plus the entire week. Okay, and humidity, of course, is going to be about 300. So, at any rate, um, pray for them. Um, they they really work hard, but they they do a wonderful job. And there's one thing that I think I've talked to a couple of parents that went. Um, it's not bad for our kids who generally have pretty much everything they need or want to see genuine poverty um, and see how people um, have to live. That is until, you know, Joe takes care of them. But anyway, I had to get a little bit of politics in. <clears throat> We're all going to be fine as soon as, you know. Anyway. How many of you, and, I, and maybe I shouldn't even have you raise your hands. Um, I, I won't, because I don't want to embarrass anybody. How many of you know what the means of grace means? Think about that, whether you know or not. I'm not going to have you um, indicate whether you do or not. The means of grace we don't talk about very often, but we probably should more than we do. The means of grace are, it's difficult to describe how important they are. The means of grace are determinative regarding eternity. The means of grace and our use of them will have an impact, positively or negatively, on where we spend eternity. The means of grace then, are critically important. The means of grace and the view of the means of grace, definition of what they are and what their use is, was a major, among several, division point between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism in the 1500s. There were people burned at the stake over the means of grace. Now, that's not a good idea. I'm not supporting that. But the means of grace are important. A definition of the means of grace. Divinely appointed channels through which the influences of the Holy Spirit are communicated to our souls. It's God's means, his methods of strengthening, encouraging, protecting our inner heart. Grace, of course, is, has a double meaning. 
two-sided meaning. One is God's wonderful, unmerited favor to us. Maybe one of the best little simple definitions I ran across is owing to our sinfulness and our fallenness as humans, God ought to be against us, but he's for us. That's a really good, simple definition of that part of grace, that meaning of grace. It is undeserved favor that God shows us. Jesus probably described it clearly, as clear as anyone, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Father, he said, sends the rain on the just, but also on the unjust, and is kind to the thankful, but also to the unthankful. He's kind to those who don't even respond or acknowledge it. Or, here's another sense of that. People use the means of, the, they use grace to repudiate grace. Let me explain that with the second definition or second side of the definition of grace. It is God's enablement. He gives me, Jesus also defined that very well. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can't do anything. Well, what does that mean? Well, we may think, well, that means be a missionary, you know, whatever. Yes. But at deeper points, it means I don't even have the capacity to know right from wrong, except as Jesus gives it to me, as God has granted to us to the ability to discern right from wrong. Second, I have no capacity to choose the right or the wrong once I discern it, except for grace. I, I, we lost in the Garden of Eden when mankind sinned. We lost our capacities. We lost our ability to discern. We lost everything. God partially restores it to us so that he can call us back to himself. He calls us back that he might redeem us, that he might restore us. How do I know that that still small voice that he uses, we sometimes call it conscience, how do I know he's calling me? How do I recognize it's his voice? Grace the enablement to recognize his voice. How do I know how to respond to it? Grace. Without me, you can do nothing. The means then of grace are God's ways for us to not only receive grace, but to maintain it. We receive grace 
not only in a general sense when we're even lost, but we receive grace when we are converted. We receive grace when God fills us with his spirit and purifies our heart. Those gifts of grace, however, have to be maintained. Those gifts of grace can be lost. I can neglect. Um, Hebrews says, I can neglect so great a salvation. And the word neglect there doesn't mean some belligerent decision saying, I've decided, I got up this morning and I've decided I'm going to hate God, fight God, not, no. It literally means to just let it slip through your fingers. Inattention, superficial care, I can neglect so great a salvation. Primarily then, the means of grace are those ways that we maintain our relationship with God. Maintain grace. There's at least, I'll stick to four. I think there's four main means of grace that we um, generally mark as the major ways we maintain the Word of God or maintain grace. The first one is the Word of God. Jesus said, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I've been thinking about how totally we live in God's grace. I don't have the capacity to do anything except he helps me. He grants me grace. And it's helped kind of open up a verse to me that I believe it, but sometimes you don't understand, I don't, maybe the full meaning. Paul was preaching to the Athenians in Acts 17, and he said, in him, God, we live, move, and have our being. That's a major statement that I can't really plumb the depths of. Somehow, somehow we have to recognize how utterly dependent we are on God for everything. That's why if he were to withdraw his grace from us, his favor from us, we'd perish in a moment. He's the one keeping us here. He's the one keeping us alive. He's the one maintaining us. And just a little bit of a side note. When we recognize how much God enables us, when we use that enableness to decide against him, we use that power of choice to choose to reject him, that's catastrophic. It's only God that gives me the power to choose to know right. And when I use that power that he gave me to turn it back against him, won't go well with us. 
Now, back to means of grace, probably one. This was a huge contention in the 1500s. Is it the word of God? Or is it the sacraments administered by the church? They're both means of grace, but the priority of one or the other literally got some people burned at the stake. The word of God is primary. Primarily, the greatest means of grace is the word of God. His word is power. Remember, if we look at creation, he spoke. He said. That's all it says. God said, let there be light. God spoke, and it's done. There's no separation then between God's saying and God's doing. It's one and the same. So the word of God is what I live on. And when we speak of the word of God being a means of grace, it means several things. One, and I feel like we need to hear this. Number one, it's the private, and primarily, it's the private, habitual reading of the Word of God. I've quoted this to you before. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist, said, read and pray daily. It is for your life. Otherwise, he said, you'll be a trifle all your days. You mount to nothing spiritually. He's right. Every person, every person that I've ever seen know God, have an experience with the Lord, walk with Him for however, drift away, get cold in their hearts, the ashes on the hearths, the coals are out. It started not with deciding, I am going to rob a convenience store today and I've just settled on it. That isn't where people get off. We just stop reading, praying, and I'm not talking about, well, I pray while I'm driving. I don't, yeah, I'll think, okay, fine. I know I do too. But there's a time. Jesus said, don't do your praying to be seen of men. Go into your closet, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret who will reward you. Reading and praying are not only to be continual, but a specified time. Jesus said that. Going into your closet, he said, whatever, getting some private time, reading your Bible opening up your Bible and reading. Listen, you will be amazed at the things you read, maybe even that very day, that speak to something you encounter through the day. And you'll think, man, I just read that the little verse, maybe a half a verse, some little phrase jumps off the page, talks to your heart. And that very day, you encounter a temptation or some situation that that addressed. 
God's alive. His word is living. We have to instill it into our hearts. Read your Bible. Now, you will, if you go from here today and you say, I'm going to do it. Get ready for any number of things involving the kids, the dog, plumbing in the house, whatever. Dead batteries, I don't care what. Something will do its best to keep you from establishing a habit of maybe whatever your schedule is, get up earlier in the morning or whatever, but spending time with God's Word. Think if there's such a supernatural effort mounted against us to keep us from reading our Bibles. Think it must matter then. If it matters to the evil one, it must matter to God. Read your Bible. Know the Word of God. There's something we've lost. It used to be that even, let me get off the subject a second here. Any of you read much of Winston Churchill's speeches or go back in our own history, Daniel Webster, whoever? Their speeches for a Congress or whatever often would just be strings of, of Scripture. Especially Churchill. He, would, he used scripture all the time between, you know, a gallon of whiskey a day. Um, but it was, the, it, it was considered you were well-rounded educationally and culturally if you knew the Bible. That's the Listen, the Bible's the foundation of our whole Western civilization. If you don't know the Bible, you're clueless. Really. It's been probably 25 years ago. I was preaching at a Christian college. And uh, after some masterpiece that I'd preached, the, the president took me to lunch and talked to me. He said, you know how bad off we are? And I said, I don't know, but I'm a pessimist, so I believe it. Um, <laughs> he said... The students that we're getting, he said, these are, I'm not talking to you, he said, about students that are coming from totally unchurched upbringings, don't know anything. That, that's a different story. He said the kids we're getting from supposedly Bible-believing churches and homes are so ignorant Biblically, basic Bible stories. He said, do you know what we have to do? He said, we have completely scrapped the curriculum for first-year students, the study of the Bible, and we have resorted to one textbook. Now, this will date me, some of you, that if you're really old, you might remember this. Edgar Meyer's 
Bible story book, okay? Big, fat book, bunch of pictures, and it was for children. I mean children, children. He said, we had to, we had to sink to that level because these kids that were coming to us didn't know Peter from Moses. They might have heard of Daniel in the lion's den, but they weren't sure who Daniel was or when. It was. They didn't know anything. How'd that happen? In churches that believe the authority and the importance of Scripture. It's not reinforced both by the church and in the family. Read your Bible. A second thing, I know our schedules are worse today. It's difficult. But God will help us. That's family devotions. Family reading of Scripture. That's, a, that's virtually disappeared. I had the privilege. I didn't always think it was a privilege. In fact, most of the time, I didn't view it as a privilege. It was, oh, can't we get out of here? We ate, and they waited till I got home from track practice or whatever was going on. But we ate, and before you moved away from the table, Dad would always say, you know, get my Bible. And he'd read a passage of Scripture. When we were little, read the Bible story, you know, books. Um, with our kids, they wanted to act them out. They're now college professors and in professional their careers. They still remember acting out the Bible stories where, you know, they'd fight over or argue over, you know, who gets to be David, who gets to be Goliath, who gets to, you know, and there's that little, you know, around, 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 you know, whatever that song was about David. Then the other one gets to fall down when, you know, they got hit in the forehead with the rock. The one they really loved, and this will test you, how many know who Ehud and Eglon Ehud was one of the judges in Israel in the, its early days before the kings. Eglon was the, shall we say, morbidly obese king of Moab. And God raised up Ehud, told him, God told him, make yourself, I'm getting off subject here, but I'll hurry up. Make yourself an 18-inch long dagger. Now, it, I think it probably could have been shorter, but for Eglin, okay? He said, you make it 18 inches, make sure it works. And you go meet him. Tell him you're coming. Deliver the tribute money that the Jews had to pay to Moab for Moab to leave him, leave him alone. So he goes, says, I come here, brings the tribute money. Then he tells... Ehud tells the servants, please leave. Eglin, got to talk to you alone. I got a message from God for you. It's about 18 inches long. He locks the door. They're in there together. Ehud gets up and walks towards Eglin, and Eglin stands up to hear this message, and then he received the message and died on the floor. Ehud 
sneaked out, locked the doors, took off. And he was a half a day's journey before they figured out uh, we need to get the lock and find out how come he's not coming out of there. Well, I can't tell you the number of times the kids got to act that out, argue over who got to be Eglin, who got to, well, you didn't want to be Eglin. But, you know, so the little man on the totem pole was Eglin. And the one that won the argument that day for devotions got to be Ehud and pretend to run you through with a dagger, okay? Now, I'm telling you that because the Bible doesn't ever, ever, we handle it right, it doesn't have to be boring to little kids at all. Why'd God put all those stories, thousands of them? Why'd he put David and Goliath and the lion's den, all those things in there? He knew, he knew he wanted us to teach our children. God's not, he's not stupid. He wrote things that would be captivating. Teach them to our children. Talk to them about God's word. Expose them to God's word. God has a way of keeping that alive in their lives for the rest of their days. The word of God is our means of grace, peace, grace, direction, guidance, conviction, warnings, all come from the word of God. Second, I've already mentioned, is prayer. You cannot, we cannot function without a, a lively, fresh, up-to-date prayer life. Now, not necessarily the length of time you pray is the mark, but it's the, the vitalness of talking to God. And God, listen, I, I, a little kid, as old as I am now, I grew up under the King James version of the Bible, which everybody read. So I never, I thought you'd probably drop directly to the flames and never get out if you didn't pray using these and thous. Um, you know, God was not you. Honestly, I, I, by the time I got probably into seminary, I still was a little hesitant to call God you because I grew up in the day when it was thee, thou, hast, wasn't, or whatever. And but there, the only thing that came from that was a sense of, listen, uh, God's not some fishing buddy with a floppy hat that we just kind of joke with. He's God. He's God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Yes, we're to come into his presence with thanksgiving and with singing. Absolutely. But never forget, he's the sovereign. I read about, and I'll make this short, I have a little book called God's Secretaries, really old book. And it is from the diaries and the story of the 54 translators of the King James Version of the Bible, clear back in 1611, so when it was published. They were in the days of monarchies. It bled into their translation. 
when they would take a book that they had finished, one of the books of the Bible, in and present it to the king. I never knew any of this, but you read it. They walked in a certain amount of feet back. I don't know how far, but some part back. They, they would kneel. He would tell them, yes, you can get up. They would come for, uh, closer, kneel at a little kneeler, and present the translated portion to him. And he would receive it promised to read it, they were allowed then to stand up and they had to walk backwards. Never, you never turned your back on the king. You walked backwards, clear to the door. And then you back out the door. And then the servants closed the door. Then you could go your way. You think, wow, well, I don't know what kind of rigmarole is all that about. I'll tell you what it is. That bled into even their translating of Scripture. Whose word is this? One greater than this guy. The king. That's a good attitude to have. Both in the word of God and prayer. You will be, we will all be hassled in prayer. Wandering thoughts. Heaviness. Feeling that God's not near feel like your prayers are just going out into something and you end up feeling, man, Lord, I'm, I'm, why am I even doing this? Don't give in to that. Jesus said, everyone, very simple, he spoke a parable saying, all of us should pray always. There's three words there. All of us always pray, never lose heart. Never. Don't give up. Don't quit. Prayer is a means, tremendous means, for God's grace to flow into my heart. A third one, fellowship of the saints coming to church, getting together with like-minded believers. This is why the writer of the Hebrews said, stop. They were doing something he spoke to them about. Stop forsaking the gathering together of yourselves. Stop doing that. Now, I know obviously there's crazy work schedules, there's sicknesses, there's all kinds of things that we're going to, we can't be in the actual environment of the church every single Sunday. But don't get too lax with that. We, something I discovered through all this COVID business and everything else, um, even though thankfully we have the technology that we can live stream, people are going to look at the service, you know, there's thousands out here right now watching this service. There's still nothing like shaking somebody's hand, seeing them in front of me. There's just no substitute for that. God built that into us. He made us social beings. We all consider, we have labels, hermit, recluse, whatever, for people that 
aren't sociable. We consider it almost instinctively not normal. Solitude's great. We know that. But God said, I want you to get together and collectively worship me, pray, sing, hear the word of God. That's for our good. The devil loves, and Peter used this illustration, he is like a roaring lion going around seeing who may, whom he may devour. Just go watch the Discovery Channel. What wildebeest or deer or whatever gets it? The ones who gradually, inattentively get separated from the herd. That's a little bit like neglecting gathering together. Now, every, every kind of Christian fellowship that I think ministers grace does not have to be a Bible study or never talk about anything except for Scripture and God. Fellowship of Christians, if we're just talking about life, there's something about spending time with another believer, even if the subject matter is not specifically God. God's still in that. He's there. Because he said, we're just two or three of you get together. I'm there. So just plain fellowship, eating donuts, drinking coffee, um, is healthy for our souls when we're fellowshipping together. Lastly, the sacraments. And primarily, when we say sacraments, plural, there are two. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. Well, we're not baptized over and over and over and over. Being baptized is a means of grace. But the Lord's Supper, whatever the frequency, Jesus didn't specify a particular frequency. He said, as often as you do this, be sure you're doing it in remembrance of me. And there's two elements to that. There's remembrance, but there's also anticipation. He said, you show the Lord's death till he comes. So I'm looking backwards to what he did for me and what he has done for me. And I'm looking forward to the fulfillment of all of his promises, not only for this life, but for the end. When he takes us to heaven. So the Lord's Supper is a major means of grace. By participating in it, I receive grace in my heart. If, and here's what will remind us and quit, whether it's the word of God, whether it's the sacraments, whatever it is, I can participate in all of those and receive no benefit whatsoever. You realize that? I can, I can do it. I can have communion Every Sunday, I can read the Bible, probably won't, but if I read the Bible every week, it can end up accomplishing nothing in me unless it is, to use the words of Scripture, mixed 
with faith. 1 Corinthians, Paul is rehearsing all the great works God did for the Israelites in the wilderness. Fed them manna, divided the Red Sea, divided the Jordan River, all the things he did. And then you know what he says in the 10th chapter? He sums it up. He said, all of that did not profit them anything because it was not mixed with faith. So we can go through all kinds of motions. The difficulty is there can be a certain salving of our conscience that we went to church, we took communion, we did this, we did that, we checked the box, checked the box, checked the box. I must be fine. The Israelites saw the works of God like no nation or people have ever seen. And Paul said it accomplished nothing because it wasn't mixed with faith. The key then is I must believe the God I'm approaching, that he is of infinite power, knowledge, goodness. And faith presumes action. There is, don't let anybody tell you, ever, that you can separate faith from obedience. There is no such thing. Faith always, true faith, always results in obedience. Disobedience extinguishes faith. They cannot, ex they cannot exist apart. I want us to be just examining ourselves. God knows each of our hearts. He knows exactly where we're at, what's going on. If you needed any little spur, read, pray, so forth, listen to it. That's God. He's faithful. Jesus said, keep your soul. That means I got to do something. Participate in the means of grace. Let's bow our heads. And I'd like for us to just close this morning with the Lord's Prayer. Praying together using the words trespass, and trespasses. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.